Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Mafadon. Thanks for tuning in. Four Boston City Council seats are up for grabs, and on Tuesday, residents cast their votes in primary elections at the polls. Don't let the quiet streets fool you. Tuesday was primary election day in the city of Boston, and residents from districts 3, 5, 6, and 7 had some big choices to make as to whether city council incumbents would stay or go. BNN News made our way to polls in Mattapan and West Roxbury to hear what's most important to residents. We need a accountability. I mean, we pay taxes and we try to do the right thing and uh, just like to get uh, things done. I mean, keep the streets clean, the, the, the graffiti, the, uh, I don't know, just to get the support we we need as taxpaying citizens. Boston is a city on the move, and so I voted because this is like, there's so much going on right now that's really good, but there are also a lot of problems and room for improvement. I really care about affordable housing, um, more uh, bike infrastructure and safer streets. I care about um, public accountability and democracy. And so I voted because our voice matters, and I think that matters in, um, these primary elections where the percentage of the turnout is quite low. Low voter turnout continues to be a concern for city officials. Local elections have the most impact on daily lives for residents, and in races where there are a substantial number of candidates, every vote matters, just as every voter issue has weight. It's education for the youth, I believe, will be the number one priority. I don't think that there's enough as far as curriculum goes in the city of Boston. I would like to see them teach a more broader perspective on the whole world in general. You know, um, not mainly have to be African studies, but something on that level where kids could just know more about, you know, just the United States of America. I think the city needs more attention on how to resolve what's happening at Mass and Cass. It's, re it's reached its own level of critical mass at this point, and we really need to be serving the people who need the most help while being respectful, too, of the best needs of the community that surrounds it as well. Polls were open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Tuesday. And with so much at stake, BNN hopes you made your voice heard with your vote. Incumbent Boston City Councilors Ricardo Arroyo of District 5 and Kendra Lara of District 6 failed to secure the votes for a second term, making room for City Hall official Enrique Pepin and retired Boston police officer Jose Ruiz, as well as Labor Attorney Ben Weber and IT professional William King to face off for their respective districts in two months. District 7 Boston City Councilor Tanya Fernandez-Anderson will face one-time Councilor Althea Garrison in November. District 3 has narrowed its seven candidates down to two. Boston Planning and Development Agency official John Fitzgerald and BPS teacher Joel Richards. Voting is your right, Boston, so make sure to exercise it, not only in November. Over in Fenway, residents rolled up their sleeves for the Red Cross gifting life as they remembered lives lost on September 11th. Rolled up sleeves and big hearts were in abundance as the Red Cross dedicated September 11th to extending the gift of life to those who need it. I think blood is such a rare and valuable commodity and to be able to give some of mine, because I don't need it all, for the benefit of somebody who really does need it, it's a privilege for me. 
to be able to do that. We take it for granted, but having enough blood can be a matter of life and death for those in desperate need of a donation. According to the Red Cross, every two seconds, someone in the United States needs blood and or platelets. I am a blood recipient, and when I went in for my second open heart surgery, they told me that I couldn't get that surgery that day, and my surgery was postponed because of the lack of O-negative blood. I was eight years old and thought I was going to die, but I got my surgery the week after. Thank you to the wonderful blood donors who saved my life. The need for blood is constant. It's, it's not just uh, after something bad happens, there's a big event, a, a crash, a fire. It's, uh, it's something that people count on, depend on every day in hospitals across the city, across this country. So the idea of having a, a regular supply of blood is life, truly life-saving. And the act of donating blood on September 11th is no coincidence, but a reminder of the lives lost on that tragic day 22 years ago. I've been volunteering with the Red Cross since I was in high school. It's, it's really a great way to save lives. Um, each pint has, you know, blood, platelets, plasma, so it can really go to three people. And, you know, while I'm young and, like, I'm able, I'm able to do this, so. And especially on this drive today, 9-11, um, it's, it's an especially important day to give back when you can. I think any of us who were aware in that moment or of a certain age and older could place exactly where we were on 9-11 when the news reports started coming in. And today, it's important that the next generation, the teenagers and, and younger children who don't have those direct memories, that that education is passed on, that the experiences that so many families had and what that moment meant for all of us that we continue to talk about it and remember. A moment of silence was observed by donors and Red Cross workers to honor the thousands of individuals who perished in the September 11th attacks. It's people coming together and reflecting on our collective responsibility to keep the legacy going of those lives who were lost and to keep the spirit going of how everyone pulled together with our first responders and so many community members to stand with those who are feeling that impact. And so I know the Red Cross is uh, relying on all of us today, but also all throughout the year, because this is really the, the sometimes unseen acts of heroism, giving blood that can then save lives at any moment of need throughout the year. And after the blood was drawn, donors were able to bring home their well-used stress balls, a small memento of their selfless act. On Saturday, veterans honored their fallen brethren at the 42nd rededication of the South Boston Vietnam War Memorial. On Sunday, the brave soldiers who fought in Vietnam were proudly commemorated for the 42nd year at the South Boston Vietnam War Memorial in Medal of Honor Park. The legacy of those who fought and lost their lives in the war has not and will not be forgotten, especially by veterans who still recall the sacrifices they made. We have to remember all our veterans who sacrificed their lives on our behalf. When it's just like the firemen, when people are running out, we were running in to protect our homeland.
And that's why we have to remember them like it says on the memorial, not to forget them. They gave their lives on our behalf. You're fighting next to your brothers. You're, you do want what you can to, to save the lives of people next to you. But in the, in the end, it, when you go to memorials like this, it's the families, the children, and the nieces and nephews who show up every year to remember the sacrifices that 18, 19-year-old kids made. And that's why we remember these people who are our true heroes and gave supreme sacrifices for their country. The memorial is engraved with the names of 25 men who laid down their lives to protect their country. Adding to the honor is the site's location in the South Boston neighborhood these defenders grew up in. As veterans and military officials paid their respects, the feeling of gratitude and patriotism was unmistakable. I want to talk about the 25 names that are inscribed on this stone behind me. Unlike many of you here, I didn't know any of them. Up until last week, I didn't know their names. I didn't know their stories. But when I thought about it, I really didn't have to. I know of men like them. I know of individuals that I serve with who follow a tradition of service. There are men and women who confronted with danger and death did their best. They saw what they could do, and they did their best. They worried more about the guy to their left and their right than they did about themselves. South Boston suffered one of the highest losses of men killed in action in the United States. And this memorial was among America's first for Vietnam veterans. Located next to Christopher Lee Playground, the stone inscribed with their names serves as a reminder to future generations to never forget what veterans have done to protect our home. Quite simply, the dream 42 years ago was to remember the friends we lost and honor the ultimate sacrifice they made. It's a dream that will never die, so long as this sacred circle exists and parents take the time to tell their children about the names carved into the stone as they make their way to the playground behind me. United States Army. Remembering their sacrifices and reconnecting the communities with the memories of these proud South Bostonians was all part of this special day. But to be right here within steps of a playground, within view of our residents going about their daily lives, going to and from work. It's that reminder, every breath that we take, every step we are sharing with those who came before us. And the names that you see here, the incredible leaders that are gathered here, are a reminder to every young child in this neighborhood that they're walking on the same streets playing in the same fields, going to the same spaces of those who came before and became heroes in our community. So thank you for ensuring that that legacy will always live on. Continuing our developing story about the Long Island Bridge, on August 30th, Quincy Mayor Thomas Koch filed a 140-page appeal of the license to Mass Steps office, claiming that the plan for the Long Island Bridge is, quote, egregiously deficient. In the appeal, Mayor Koch alleges that the Boston application for the proposed reuse of the original 1951 piers and the new bridge structure would be a major threat to navigation, public health, safety, and the environment. The city of Boston plans to build the new bridge on top of the original piers, which are still standing tall in the Boston Harbor. 
The appeal argues that more than 70 years of exposure to salt water and the continued freezing and thawing of cycles have cracked the concrete above and below the waterline. The City of Boston responded via email that the project has been reviewed by several third-party regulators and that the City of Boston has been successful in every one of the 10 permit proceedings. Due to the thorough design and engineering which call for strengthening the existing piers and minimizing environmental impacts. Boston plans to continue on with the construction of the plans. Another issue that the Quincy mayor appealed was the proposed height for the bridge, which would prevent vessels above 51.75 feet from passing through the Sculpin Ledge Channel. A replacement bridge with no height adjustments would have made the over 400 transits in the area impossible last year and could have affected more than 1,500 transit depending on rising sea tides. The city of Boston has not commented on the issue. BNN will be following the story and provide our viewers for future updates. Earlier this week, the next generation of BPS students were given a warm welcome by future educators who are launching their academic journeys. They're making new friends for the upcoming bus ride. At Countdown to Kindergarten, the BPS-sponsored event helping soon-to-be students successfully transition to their first year of school Dozens of families gathered outside East Boston Public Library to welcome students and have them socialize with peers before the academic year officially starts. I think it's very important for the kids to, um, to share and to spend time with other kids so that way they're not nervous once it's time to go to school, especially at this age. They get very anxious, so I think it's, this is going to be a nice experience for her to get to know other people, other kids from other cultures as well. So um, I'm just very excited and very nervous at the same time for her and for me. More, I, I think most for me than anything else. The event engages families, educators, and the community in early learning opportunities while easing the worries of parents and their children who'll soon face new challenges. It is a big deal for them to be leaving school because they'll be far away from the parents. It's a new world for them to be starting in, you know, kindergarten. And they'll be away from us, but they'll eventually get used to it. I think it's tougher for both, both of us because they're leaving. We don't know what might be going on, how they're in school, how they're getting treated and things like that, which is a lot to worry about. The first day of school can bring on a wide range of emotions for kindergartners, which is why BPS and the city of Boston kept the mood light with books, bubbles, and colorful backpacks. For our kindergartners, our three, four, and five-year-olds, this is really the first time that they're entering the world of formal schooling. Um, child care centers are similar, but a public school is a new experience. And so we want it to feel like it is a fun experience, that it is warm and welcoming, and a place that they feel safe. And Countdown is part of the way that we do that. Even little Amal made an appearance, amazing kids with her large stature and warm energy. Looking around the schoolyard, you do see just the, the range of emotions there uh, from excitement to uh, just a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of, of worry, and, and it's our job to make sure that they're, we're connecting in as many relationships already even before that moment of arriving at the, at the front door of the school or the schoolyard so that they already feel like this is their home. And for our even younger children, for now, 
The kindergarten experience is something they can only dream about. And who is little Amal, you might ask? The 12-foot puppet touched down in the Central Wharf Park last Thursday before making her way to Chinatown and beyond as she shines a light on the struggles of refugees and displaced peoples. Amal is a little girl with big plans. Her large stature is astounding to see, but her story is the most remarkable thing about her. What she gave off was power and peace and presence. I love that she would close her eyes while she was dancing and getting into the rhythm and then open up and make contact with the dragons and the people around her. She was extremely welcoming, but also very like calm and powerful. The walk is very peaceful and we got to shake you know, her hands and it was very smooth and big and it reminds me of the roundness and harmony. It was completely beautiful. I was just blown away by this beautiful puppet, especially by um, her eyes and her hair and her shoes. And um, sh she spreads a message of hope for the Syrian refugee crisis. I thought it was beautiful. Little Amal, the 12-foot-tall puppet made in the likeness of a 10-year-old Syrian refugee child, has become a global symbol of human rights as she visits the United States for the first time. She's already completed 6,000 miles overseas, crossing 97 towns and 15 countries, all in an effort to convey a message of peace and empathy for one another. Refugees have been uprooted, transplanted, they have nowhere to live. We may think we have it tough here in the United States, and many of us do, but believe me, to be a refugee, to have an entire town, village, an entire city in some cases, uprooted and told to move and can't even find water, no, it's a reminder that there's troubles all over the world, and just if you think you have massive troubles, there's someone else on this planet who has troubles even bigger than yours. I was watching this puppet, and I was speaking to some folks around me. What if we treated refugees like we treated this puppet um, who came to visit our city? What if we greeted them with respect and joy and welcomed them into our communities? Um, these are folks who are going through um, unimaginable hardship um, and um, we need to make sure that we're treating people um, like the human beings that they are with empathy and with kindness. Since July 2021, Amal has touched the hearts of millions on the street, including hundreds of artists, faith leaders, and tens of millions online. Hundreds joined her in Chinatown last week as Amal embarks on her next 6,000-mile walk from Boston to San Diego, spreading awareness of displaced peoples and bringing comfort to those who have felt unseen. I came to see little Amal today. Um, she represents refugee, refugee children and displaced children. And little Gabby inside was displaced in some ways, so I came to let her know things are okay, things can be okay, and I appreciate that there are people out there who want to share the story of children who need help, children who need to be reunited with their families. Boston embraced Amal's visit with a diverse group of cultural artists as residents found joy in the larger-than-life girl and each other. It was a day many will never forget. Some little kid who's scared sees little Amal and says, 
I know there's people who care about me and want me to be okay. I hope they find their community, they find their friends and their family that love them and find support, find safety. And I hope, I just hope Little Amal inspires people to be that safety for their community. We move on from an inspiring little girl to a mischievous monkey for this week's interview. Celebrated for creating diverse, timely, and relevant opera, activist opera company Whitesnake Projects and its founder, Cerise Lim Jacobs, are bringing the world premiere of Monkey, a kung fu puppet parable to the Robert J. Orchard stage at Boston's Emerson Paramount Center. The three performances take place Friday, September 22nd through Sunday, September 24th. We had the chance to, to catch up with Jacobs. He was joined by Puerto Rican-born puppeteer Gandul, as well as a very special guest. Here's our conversation. What is the story of Monkey, a Kung Fu puppet parable? Okay, well, um, Monkey, a Kung Fu puppet parable is based on a centuries-old, very iconic Chinese quest saga called Journey to the West. And um, I grew up with it. it. Every Asian child grows up with it. We hero worship monkey. You might have heard of him referred to sometimes as monkey king. You like that, don't you? Monkey king. <laughs> and, um, and so it is really the story of three misfits who journey west with a monk. They are tasked with Buddha to retrieve the Buddhist sutras. And of course, monkey being the rapscallion he is really has to be coerced into to doing this because he just wants to roam around and make mischief. Right, monkey? Mm -hmm. And the other two want to go on the journey because these misfits all want to find something about themselves that is lacking. So it's, I rewrote it to bring out the sort of Wizard of Oz aspects because as I was taking Monkey apart, I realized that the Wizard of Oz is really Monkey, just transported to different place and time, where you have them journeying on a quest, the three disciples or pilgrims, all with something lacking in them and all seeking something, whether they know it or not. And at the end of the journey, they are transformed. Of course, along the journey is where all the fun is. You know, we have the demon queen Mara who puts obstacles in their way, temptations. She's trying to derail Buddhism from reaching China, right? Because if mm. the monk goes to China and gets the sutras, then Buddhism will spread throughout And then on uh, opposing her, because it's an epic fight between good and evil, we've got Yin, the goddess of mercy, who helps our poor pilgrims out whenever they are in dire straits. So it's really the quest, a quest story of all of us journeying west. We are all journeying west, and that's what I want the audience to do with us. I love rehearsal. I love hearing about like the process of the putting things together. Uh, what was most exciting for you to discover in the rehearsal room for the show? How do the practice of uh, Kung Fu, for instance, illuminate the story? 
I I love to to see all of these things together in a play, and that's very 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 um how do you say exciting to me because there are practices that I keep apart in my life. So I have uh, an opportunity to bring all of my knowledge of both things in one things and in one thing. So that's for me is the most amazing thing that the opportunity and the also the opportunity to work with other people that I have never met before. Mm. I came the way to Puerto Rico all the way from Puerto Rico to do this. So, so this is very exciting too, to me, being in, in another city with new people. Yeah, that's, that's very important and, and special for me. Kung Fu yeah. practitioners, they animate the story's three main characters. They are monkey, pig, and sand woman. How did you develop the, the movement and uh, the character of monkey? And which character would you say that you identify most with? Well, the movement of the puppets are very special. It has been built from Tom Lee, a very, very, very known puppet builder. So it got their own life by her, by themselves. But also the people that are, the puppeteers that are animating them have also their, bring their stuff to them. And as a captain puppeteer, I like to hear that and use that only thing uh, only thing that you could bring that is your your own experience through that puppet i identify more with all with monkey mm. because it's versatile he flies he jumps into people he have a stick and uh, sometimes i just cool some of the some of the characters and stuff so yeah I identify with monkey so we are meant to be together. Well, Monkey, it marks your fourth collaboration with the composer Jorge Sosa. Uh, what new things did you want to discover musically uh, in this uh, in this opera? Well, you know, that's a, that's such a great question, Faith, because it being an iconic uh, Chinese fable, it would have been easy for White Snake to commission a Chinese composer because, you know, we all grew up with, with you, you know this. And uh, instead, we commissioned Jorge Sosa, a Mexican-American composer, because the goal is to create a multicultural opera where there is a melding of all the different diverse elements that compose American society today. So our sound will musically is a combination of um, Chinese inflected music and Mexican inflected music. Um, and just sort of marrying the two together creates a multicultural sound world, our singers, are um, diverse, so we've got, you know, Chinese singers and um, Latina singers and Black singers, and of course our puppeteers are from all over America, as uh, Gandul said, he's from Puerto Rico and he's come to Boston to um, make Monkey come alive. Mm. Thank you, Gandul, Monkey. <laughs> No, <laughs> and who would you say that this production is for and what would you like audiences to take away from Monkey? Well, I think that 
This production is a family production. And what I hope that people will take away from it is, first and foremost, I want to sort of like dispel the notion that opera is oldie, worldy, white, Eurocentric, boring, you know, um, foreign, and um, I want them to have a blast. I want them to say, wow, is this really opera? Mm. If it is, I want more, okay? And then through the enjoyment of this amazing visual feast and sonic feast, I want them to start to think about their own journey as they follow our intrepid travelers on their journey and they will go on the same journey and I want them to come out of that journey at the other end feeling like they've learned maybe a little bit more about themselves mm. and that they've spent 90 minutes of their lives really enjoying the moment to its fullest. For more monkey business, whitesnakeprojects.org. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. That's our broadcast for tonight. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mafadon, and I'll see you next Friday.